Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. If you want to follow the podcast on Facebook, go ahead and do so at Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone. If you want to follow the podcast on Getter, Truth Social, and Twitter, go ahead and do so at RKY Freedom. That's at RKY Freedom. If there's a guest you think I should interview, you have a suggestion, or you just want to drop a line, you can go ahead and email me as well. That email address is Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. I personally would like to thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. Occasionally in the political arena, you hear about something that sounds like a great idea until you research and read more about it, and you realize that there's a lot of red flags. Well, that's exactly how I feel about the Convention of States. I thought it was a great idea when I first heard about it, until I heard speeches about why we shouldn't have the Convention of States. Leah Southwell was my guest on this episode of the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. Leah Southwell is a field director for the John Burt Society for most of Montana, Wyoming, parts of South Dakota and all of Colorado. Leah Southwell lived in Chile for seven years and compares her experience to what's going on here in the States. She also tied her observations into the Convention of States, which is a hot topic on occasion here in America. I presented the side from the Convention of States and she presented the side against it. I have to agree with Leah Southwell. I actually did some research myself and talked to other people who were opposed to the Convention of States. Leah and I also had a very heart-to-heart conversation about the proper role of government. You'll want to stick around because I told a personal story at the end of the podcast. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to agree with Leah on everything. That includes the Convention of States and the proper role of government. You might even understand where Leah's coming from and agree with the principle, but you disagree with some of what she says about the proper role of government. But you know what? She's going to make you think if you listen with an open heart and mind. And that's exactly what I did here on this podcast. I think we had a very heart-to-heart interview, and I think that you will really come away thinking about the proper role of government. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Hi, Leah. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Kevin? Oh, I'm not too bad. Um, It's great to have you on the podcast, and uh, I really enjoyed meeting you on the 5th of June here in Billings. Likewise. Glad you could come. So let's uh, talk a little bit about your adventure. You were in South America and Chile for two years, for how long? Seven years? Yes, seven years. Yeah, so what inspired you to go down there in the first place? Well, I'm a crazy homeschooling mom, or I should say retired homeschooling mom. Uh, Oh, how dare you? You're a threat to society, you know. Absolutely. (laughs) I uh, had had an international experience myself. I lived 10 years in Holland in my 20s, went there when I was 16, and found it the most uh, forming experience I could have in my life and told my kids as they were being raised that they needed to have a foreign experience too and that sometime in their life they needed to go live uh, in another country for a while and just see the world from a different perspective, learn their own language from a different perspective of learning another one. 
and uh, thought it would be a valuable experience as part of their education to do this. And they didn't want to do it until they were 18 and 20, but they both decided at the same time that that was as good of any. Uh, both were done with high school and one of them already had his associate's degree. And so it was a good time. And if we were going to do it, it would be a whole lot easier to do it with the three of us than one of one of them on their own. And so we decided to do it in uh, November of, well, we decided to do a little bit before that, but we left in November of 2012. Oh, okay. And valuable oh, well, lesson well, well. also to go to a country like any immigrant does which is often with little to no money not even knowing the language just with the, your suitcase with no way to go back home again and to try to figure out how am i going to survive this and so i thought that was a very valuable life skill that everyone should have to go through kind of like so if you could survive that, you could survive just about anything in life. So how did you, okay, so you went there without a house or without, how did you, how did you get established? How did you get a job? Because I, if you just went with your suitcase, you were probably homeless for a while. How did well, you not really. We, we uh, planned for something called an apart hotel, which was rather expensive, but it was somewhere to land. And stayed there and started taking Spanish classes and at the Spanish language school. They were very helpful in helping us figure out how and what we could do to make money. And through there, we found a cheaper apartment to live in through the connections of those people. So when you arrive, you just start saying, who do you know and what do you know and how do you think we should do this? And people offer you help and you figure your way step by step. Okay, so I've got to ask you, into the dark. because I'm blind, we're going to get to more of your, we're going to get to the Convention of States and all that. But I've got to ask, was it hard yeah. learning the language? Because I would, I know some Spanish, but I just know very basic Spanish. And then I would be worried that people would not understand me, even if I knew Spanish because of my thick American accent. Did you ever run into that issue? Well, of course, and learning a language is not easy, but it's no. on many things. Usually when you're immersed in a language, you pick it up fairly quickly. Within six months to a year, you'll be speaking it fairly fluently. If Did you learn a lot of swear words, uh, words that you're not supposed to say around your of elderly course. parents? <laughs> of course, yeah. I guess so, you don't it, want to tell me any of them around here, do you? It's, yeah, irrelevant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Anyhow, um, the challenge that I had that made it more difficult is I was not immersed in the language. Immersed meaning you're surrounded by it all the time. Uh, the business that I decided to build and did build successfully was English teaching. And I lived with my kids. And so at home, we were speaking English. And on the job, I was speaking English. So I wasn't immersed. And only through Spanish lessons was I really learning Spanish. Okay, so uh, I got to ask, did you, what did you do for entertainment? Because obviously the radio stations down there mostly spoke Spanish. So you couldn't really listen to the radio unless there were a couple English-speaking stations here and there. Well, you have to listen to things in order to start learning and, and under, in order to start beginning to understand the world. So yes, some of that. But I guess entertainment would be 
hanging out with fellow foreign people uh, who are going through the same challenges you are. I bet that was hard to do. I would, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. I did I would have a very difficult time mastering this. The whole experience was difficult. That was the point of it. Gosh. All right. Well, it was okay. living in survival mode for most of those seven years was just plain living in survival mode. So you were there from what? 2012, you said to 2019. Correct. Okay. So what made you decide to come back? Maybe this is a springboard we can use to get into our political landscape and the convention of states here. That is the springboard. What's that? Uh, in October, on October 19th, 2019, everything changed, not just for me, but for Chile, permanently changed Chile. What happened was a sudden attack on the public transportation system, uh, the subway system in particular at first. It was supposedly over a four cent increase in the price of transportation. And uh, I doubted that that was the reason, but it suddenly turned it into a terrorist attack. The military declared um, state of uh, emergency Military came out on the street. Everybody had to stay in their homes and they were trying to figure out what was going on. And it quickly spread to the buses being attacked and burnt in the streets. And then the stores being looted, the churches being looted and burnt to the ground. And tens of thousands of small businesses were looted. And all this was in the first two days, two weeks, something like that. And within uh, a week, there was uh, a million man march. I don't know if they quite made a million, but it was a whole lot of people came out to the center of uh, the city of Santiago, the capital city, and were complaining and protesting about everything that was wrong in the country. I was quite shocked because I did a whole lot of study of why I chose Chile, and I found Chile to be not only based on my facts, but others, that Chile was one of the most economically free nations in the world. But suddenly everybody was furious about all the wrongs in society and that the inequality and all their other complaints, the private retirement system, the cost of the public transportation, the general cost of living, and they were all, well, many of these people were supporting the rioters. The media was supporting the rioters. They were, of course, peaceful rioters that were burning and looting um, and beating the snot out of the police once the military was required to withdraw. And so it was all quite baffling to me at first what was happening here. But starting with that Million Man March, there was a sudden call for a constitutional convention. I, that concerned me deeply because I had chosen this country for its peace and its prosperity, and now it had turned into a nightmare. And the call for a constitutional convention I knew could only mean trouble. The president resisted this call for almost six weeks the demands was that the president step down and that they get a constitutional convention. <laughs> After six weeks of nonstop destruction to the point of thinking there's not much more for them to destroy in the country, 
The president finally agreed to a people's referendum. The people would decide whether they wanted this constitutional convention. That didn't make me feel any better because I had done my own research and asked the people around me and did quite a bit of surveying of what percentage of the people would want this. And I came to the conclusion that 70% of the people were in favor of a convention. My concern came when I asked them, what specifically is wrong with your constitution that is causing these problems that you're out protesting against? And not one of them could point to anything specific in the constitution. My next question was, you haven't, or a comment was, you haven't read it, have you? And then sheepishly, all of them that were out protesting would admit that they hadn't read the Constitution, but they certainly knew that the cause of all their problems must be in that Constitution without having read it. So that was at that point when the president finally agreed to this referendum. I sat my son down, the one that was still with me there, and said, I know how constitutional conventions turn out, and I'm not going to sit around and watch the destruction and the the uh, suicide of a nation. So that was the reason why I came back. <clears throat> they did, um, with great delay, finally have their vote for that due to COVID, because COVID broke out, uh, well, three months after I got back here. And so due to that, the election was delayed, but in the end, 79% of the people voted in favor of a constitutional convention and the rules for it would be, it had to be fair, meaning and just and equality used. And so half of the delegates had to be women, the indigenous Indians had to be included and other various groups had to be represented in this constitutional convention. So there wasn't any consideration of the fact of maybe people who know what constitutions say and have studied constitutions should be the ones to attempt this, but no, just the people. They didn't want um, politicians to be involved. They wanted regular people to be involved. But don't worry, because the people got to elect their own uh, delegates to the convention. But the people are not always so wise because we're most often deceived in elections. One thing is said and then another thing is done after they're elected. Oh, really? And so I thought all of our politicians were honest. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> right, right. And so <clears throat> no surprise, the people were tricked into it from the absolute hardcore leftist Marxists all ran as moderate um, moderate uh, people who were in the center who would not do anything extreme. Well, once they were elected and once the convention convened, the truth came out that at least 70% of them were hardcore Marxists, and that's where they were going to take this convention. So the people stood back and watched. It was public. Uh, you could see and hear what was said and done, and uh, the people began to recognize in horror that what was taking place was absolutely not what they had intended it to be. And so it was about a year before the convention was over with. And by then the people had turned pretty sour and said, no, this was not what we wanted. These were not the kinds of changes because the constitution that was proposed after that convention was one of the most Marxist documents ever written. 
But the people got to choose again. So the next election was, do you want the Constitution? And if the answer is no, then we go back to the old Constitution that you were all um, all against and out protesting against. Thankfully, 64% of the population uh, recognized and saw what the entire protests, the rioting was all about. It was a uh, it was a communist revolution attempt, attempted communist revolution. And 64% of the people wised up and voted no on this radical new constitution, which then put the country back into the old constitution that brought them into the crisis in the first place. I could tell you a whole lot of history about that constitution. It was not um, not nearly as bad as they thought it was, and a lot of good was still in it. They didn't realize it themselves because they hadn't um, read it themselves, but they were being told that it was written under the dictatorship of Pinochet, which it was, and Pinochet actually had copied and emulated in that constitution. He did not write it. Uh, but a lot of it was emulated after the U.S. Constitution. And after Pinochet voluntarily stepped down after an election and narrowly lost that election after 17 years of a military rule, um, the Congress went to work for the next 20 years in eliminating everything objectionable in it. And in 2005, only 2005, the Congress and the then socialist president re-signed that constitution as satisfying and that they had eliminated all objectionable things out of that constitution. So how quick people forget that in 2005, the country united behind this constitution and now it was the blame for all of their problems. But oh, if only we could just fix the constitution, all of our problems would go away. Uh -huh. So continue to be in a constitutional crisis. I can tell you once you call for a constitutional convention, you will be in a crisis until the people accept it. And what a constitutional crisis means is that the investors in businesses will hold off on their investments. People will sell proper not knowing who's going to end up controlling the country and what kind of document will come out of this. And uh, the people are very apprehensive and insecure and worried about the future of the country while this constitutional crisis is taking place. So not a good thing to do to a country unless truly the Constitution is the problem of what's causing the issues. And so that is my lesson learned out of Chile is if you're going to have a convention, there's only two reasons to do it. There truly are problems with the Constitution or the Constitution needs to be thrown out for a new one. That's the only reason why you would want a convention. If you want to amend it, there are safe ways to amend a constitution. And constitutions are amended all the time. And ours has been amended 27 times. And it could be amended again if we so chose to amend it. Um, and so the question is, is the constitution the fault and the problem that we're facing? Is there something specific in it that causes those problems? that needs to be amended.
Or are we willing to open it up for a convention where it could overthrow everything that you have, the current constitution, and a new one could replace it? And for those people who say that would never happen, they need to go study their history of 1787, which is exactly what happened here in the United States. The delegates were sent to amend the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution at that time. They were sent to amend it. And what happened at the convention was they decided that, you know what, there's too many things that we want to change here. Let's just start all over again. Some of the delegates left and said, we don't have the authority to do that. We were sent here to amend it. We can't do this. We're leaving. Others said, well, we're here. Let's see what we come up with. And during these discussions, they knew that they had to justify what they were doing. And the way they justified it was by saying, this is a people's document and the people will have to approve this. And so as long as we are able to sell this to the people and the people will have the choice, not the state legislators, but the people, we feel justified in doing this. So for people to say you can't throw out one constitution, replace it with another, does not know our history. So these are my primary concerns is what a constitutional crisis it would cause by the call of a convention and many, many other reasons. <clears throat> but the primary and most concerning is that you could end up losing what you have and it being replaced with something entirely different. Yeah, uh, before we go any further, I want to go back real quick to the issue in Chile where the businesses were shut down. Sounds like the whole country was shut down. How did you, you must have had some good food storage or something to survive those two weeks, I assume. It was quite terrifying, to be honest, because the supermarkets were being destroyed and looted and rioted. Thankfully, not in my neighborhood, but the one in my neighborhood happened to be in the tallest building in all of Latin America, 72 stories high. And it was the symbol of capitalism. <clears throat> and so of the all the targets that they could take to show their disdain for capitalism, that building was the number one. And so it had become fortified and shut down. I don't remember for how long, pretty much most of the six weeks that I still stayed after these rioting start. And so I had to take a taxi way uptown, away from where much of the rioting was taking place to go grocery shopping. But there were long, long lines out of the supermarket with everybody being scared out of their mind whether they were going to still be able to buy food in the store. And they were limiting the number of people in the store because they were afraid that the people in the store would begin the rioting. So they would limit the number of people in the store and the rest of us had to stand outside for many, many hours before we could get in. And so even once you got in the store, you didn't know if the rioting would start while you're in the store. So yes, I had wow. some food storage. I always have some storage. Uh, but it was quite a frightening time to not know from one day to the next what's going to happen. You still have to ride the buses. You still have to take the subway, even though it's regularly under attack. And you never know what could happen next. So, yeah, living well, under something like that is uh, pretty frightening. Well, let me ask you this real quick. Then we're going to get back to the convention. This is just very fascinating. I can't let this go. 
Are there any preppers? Were there any preppers in Chile? Were there any people in rural Chile that were prepared for something and had food storage for, let's say, three months or something like that? I'm sure there are, and I would consider myself a prepper, and so I prepared as well as I could living in a city, but living in a city of a tiny apartment, you don't have a garage, you don't have any place yeah. to store things, so it was just good to keep under my bed pretty much that I I could have, but I had, I had water and I had always enough food for at least a week or two, um, so... That was fine. But, you know, after six weeks of rioting and looting and one third of all the grocery stores destroyed, uh, it makes it a little stressful of knowing sure. whether and the truck were delivering the food were being uh, hijacked and uh, broken into. And so you, you don't even know if the trucks will get to your store to refill and restock the shelves. I wouldn't even think even if you were a diehard prepper in Chile, this would be frightening just watching it on TV, hearing about it on the radio, knowing that, yeah, I'm a prepper, but I've got to go to the store to buy this or I've got to go see a relative or something. Yeah, it was terrifying to move around. People still had to work, too. Uh, we didn't shut down. Uh, it became very difficult to move around because they were destroying the public transportation system day by day. When that wasn't enough, then they started tearing down traffic lights throughout the city. This is a city of 7 million people. So imagine Manhattan uh, having all the New York City having all the traffic lights torn down. And uh, many of the buses are destroyed. The sub subway system is only limping along. Many of the lines were shut down. Uh, there were still torchings and, and um, bonfires in the streets. And so, yeah, it was quite frightening and, and difficult to get to work and to get home. And you still had military uh, state of emergency that said you had to be off the streets by five o'clock. Oh, my gosh. I want to talk more about this, but we've got to get back on topic here. I, this is just so fascinating. But we got to get back to the Constitutional Convention. So you mentioned 1787. I'm reading my notes here because I took a lot of notes uh, from constitutionalconvention.com. One of the arguments that the, they, they've got a whole bunch of myths here, and one of the myths is that this is similar to a 1787 convention. And they said that this is basically misleading uh because in 1787 i guess there were no amendments or something to that effect and here in uh, 2023 they've got amendments they're specific and only the delegates only one delegate for state will vote which i guess was probably true in 1787 uh, but they said that this is very different because it's really specific it's only uh, it's only based on a balanced budget. What would you say to that? I'd say, what does Article 5 say? Article 5 is what talks about uh, the uh, calling for a convention. Only Article 5 has the rules of which there aren't any. The only rule says that two-thirds of the states um, apply for a convention to Congress and that Congress calls the convention for the purpose of proposing amendments in plural. It doesn't say that you can limit a convention to specific amendments. It doesn't say that. 
This is where they're misleading. It also doesn't say that each state will have one vote. It doesn't say that. So they're giving their wish list of what they think it should be and the, the way they, they think it might go, but they're assuring the state legislators that the state legislators will have all the powers and that the states will have all the powers. But we don't know that because Article 5 does not lay that out. So the question is, how does Congress think this will be run versus how do the states think it will be run versus what does the Constitution app actually say? And the reality is the Constitution says nothing about the rules or the limitations on a convention. What our Declaration of Independence does it says that when our government becomes tyrannical, we have the right and the duty to overthrow it. Could an Article 5 convention be used for the right of the people to overthrow their government? I don't think so. Not based on what I'm reading here in my notes. As a matter of fact, uh, they talk about the fact that Yes, states have met for conventions before, 33 times, and apparently the forefathers, our framers of the Constitution, had more than one convention. Now, what would you say to that? I would say we're talking about a constitutional convention to discuss the Constitution of the United States. Uh -huh. That has only happened in 1787. All the other conventions they're talking about could be water water conventions. They could be GOP conventions. They could be whatever convention you want to call it. But that's Boy. not true. The only convention that has ever been held to discuss the U.S. Constitution was in 1787. And it has not happened since then. And again, they are both, they and I am referring to Article 5 the U.S. Constitution. Uh, something to note, too, is the Constitution that we had before the Articles of Confederation demanded that any uh, amendments be must be ratified by all 13 states, unanimous 100%. Yes. That was the big lynch they had to get rid of. They couldn't get rid of it unless they threw out that Constitution and brought in a new one. The new one makes it much easier to make amendments to the Constitution. What I know about overthrowing governments, for example, Venezuela, the one way that they got Venezuela was, again, making it easier to amend the Constitution. Every time, they're going to make it a little bit easier. As divided as the country is right now, pretty well 50-50, do you think that they could get anything passed with a requirement of three-fourths of the states agreeing to it. Could they amend that ratification process and say, no, let's just make it 55% of the states that have to agree on this? So the ratification of amendments can also be changed, which they deny, but yet the institution we had before was thrown out possibly for the reason that it required 100% agreement for amendments to the Constitution. One of the things that concerns me is uh, they keep talking about delegates. You know, each state sends their delegates. 
But then the delegates, only one delegate for state votes up or down. Okay, that's fine. But well, what about we don't California? know that, do we? Where, where are those rules, Kevin? Where are those rules? Where does it state that anywhere? I'm just reading on the Constitutional Convention's uh, website here where they're just right, right. But but what see. evidence do they show that that will be the rules? Have you ever been to a? a well, GOP I was going to say that you know, what if or, California or some liberal state sends their delegate? Well, well, I, then I want to mention the rules of a convention. A convention only exists through its delegates. There can be no rules before a convention convenes because. The delegates are the only ones that can make the rules. So how are they saying that the rules will be this when, first of all, we don't know who the delegates will be or how they will be chosen? That's right. So we don't know how they will That's be chosen. That's what I wonder, too. That's what, what I wanted the rules to ask you will about. Be, but they're assuring the state legislators, don't worry, you will have total control over this. And yes, then there's the question between what is a, how will a liberal state versus a conservative state view all of this? So conservative states would love to have a rule that every state is equal, right? Yes, yes. Right. We, we would love that. But do you think states like New York and California would agree to a one state, one vote? Do you think they would agree to that rule? Well, I don't think so. I mean, they could on paper, but then who's to say they wouldn't change their mind at the last minute? I don't know. Well, why would they Why would they agree to that anyhow? Look at the difference. Why, why would Wyoming be the same uh, representation as California? What, what would be just about that? So that this is, again, a rule that they claim that's the way it would be. Well, I'm sorry, it isn't written anywhere. There's no evidence that that would be the rules because, again, the delegates are the ones who write the rules of a convention. And so yes, we, constitutionally until speaking, the convention yes. convenes what the rules will be, because if you've ever been to a, 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 a like a GOP state convention, the first committee that meets is the rules committee. And it can't meet until the delegates have been chosen. Yeah. So it sounds like they're not following the rules here at this constitutional convention uh, with, as they're trying to put this whole thing together. No, I wouldn't say they're not following the rules. I'm saying they're committing to rules that don't exist, that no one knows what the rules will be. They're doing yeah. that conservative states because there's more there's a greater number of conservative states versus liberal states that's why they use that rule but what do you think they use for the rule when they're trying to sell this to the liberal states so i don't know if you know it but just this last week gavin newsom is now also calling for a constitutional convention for the purpose of not a no i did not an amendment but, you know, we're just going to rewrite the rules for guns. We'll respect the Second Amendment, but we're going to rewrite the rules about the, the ability for people to use their use and, and uh, keep guns. Oxymoron in his statement right there. But it proves that the Convention of States is the sales job on the, const on the conservatives. It's the sales job on the conservatives, but there are equal organizations, just for you to know, Convention of the States is the name of an organization. 
And they want to claim that that's what the convention would be called, but that's for marketing purposes. In reality, the left is going to want to call it something else. In reality, it needs to be called an Article 5 convention for the purpose of amending the Constitution. That's the only proper term based on what Article 5 states. So that's what we need to be calling. So Convention of States is only one of several organizations who are pushing for a convention. But the left wants a convention just as badly as the right wants a convention. But each one is being sold what that convention would look like in a different way. Do you think Gavin Newsom would say, yeah, let's call for a convention, but California will only get one vote? No. Uh, that would be nice. Now, one of the things that is that concerns me here as I'm reading this is the fact that they are arguing, the Constitutional Convention promoters here, they are arguing that there are plenty of safeguards in place. One of them is the fact that a legislative member can send a delegate back home if, in fact, they are exceeding their authority. Well, okay, but we got to go back to what about Gavin Newsom, like you said, who's calling for a convention. This isn't just conservatives now. This is Gavin Newsom. This is also a guy, a Harvard professor, Larry. I cannot remember his Lessig. last name. You probably know. Lessig. You think they're okay? You think they're going to send their delegates home if they find out that they are exceeding their authority? Maybe. Well, Kevin, if it's not what? Let's go back to 1787. In 1787, how well would that have worked if they had that rule? Because they chose to make it a closed convention. They shut the doors and didn't let anybody know what they were coming up with until they were done. How will you send someone home if they decide to close the convention? You can say, well, they can't do that. Well, why can't they? What rule is there that says that they can't do that? Yeah, I was going to say, well, uh, I suppose if uh, the delegates are not following Gavin Newsom's orders, maybe he would send them home. But uh, maybe Gavin Newsom gave them instructions. So we, ca I can't guarantee we can't guarantee that these delegates are going to follow the rules when you get these blue states out into the convention. So what would the convention entail? Would this really only be conservative issues about reigning in the federal government? Is Gavin Newsom going to send his delegates there to fight for limiting the federal government? No, he's sending nope. them there to get his job done, which is to get the changes made in the laws and in the Constitution of gun rights. That's what his goal is. But the conservatives will say, well, they can't bring that up. Well, who says they can't bring that up? What rule says they can't bring that up? What rule says that it will be limited to specific topics? That's just the sales job to get people to agree to this. Yeah. Um, why do you think that Mark Levin is one of the outspoken promoters of this on the radio and uh, on his TV shows? Well, as in all politics, you never know truly what their motives are. Do they truly believe that this is a great idea or have they been, have they accepted money to promote this? Um, have they been misled and not presented the other side? I can't begin to think what is in someone else's minds, 
but I do say follow the money. So I always look at who's accepting money from convention estates. If they've accepted money from convention estates, have they not uh, given up their their own mind? Are they not now loyal to whoever's paying them to promote this? Or yeah. to one way or the other? Politicians are now getting bought off all over the country. In South Dakota and Montana, it was a vicious battle this last year in their elections. So convention estates poured in a lot of money into certain states to take out politicians who have voted against a convention and to put in those that will vote for a convention. So is money at play? Of course money's at play. Money's at play in every aspect of politics. Yeah, well, there is definitely, I think a lot of people are impatient. I think perhaps they are marketing on people's emotions. And will good come out of this? I don't know. One thing that does bother me, though, is I've heard Mark Levin promoting this and probably others. But I'm using Mark Levin because he's the most outspoken person that I know of. They don't mention the fact that we came very close to having a convention in 1983 where we were two states away from having a constitutional convention. I haven't heard anybody mention that of you. Oh, yes. The, uh, oh, yes. This is the big battle now. So because they can't get their 34 uh, on their one topic, which is what they've been selling the legislators on, is don't worry. <clears throat> it can only be on these topics. They can't get to their 34. They're still only stuck at 19. We've held them back this year. They've gotten no additions to it whatsoever. Uh, because they're only at 19 and they see no way to get to 34, now they've changed the strategy. Now they say, we're going to look at all calls for a convention throughout the entire history of the United States, going all the way back to the Civil War. If any state has ever made an application for a convention for whatever purpose, we'll add them all up. And lo and behold, we actually have 39 of them throughout history. So yay, we can call for the convention. Oh, but wait, we told you all it would only be for one purpose. Now, what is it? Is it for the one purpose? Or will you use any and all purposes to get the convention called for and then say, well, we only use that to get it called for, but now that it's called for, we're going to limit it to one topic. Which one is it going to be? Well, I would say that they will probably sell it, like you said, as one topic, but then we don't know what's going to happen when they get in there. Now, it'd be nice if they, the, you know, if the convention actually happened, it would be broadcasted and all that, but I don't think it's going to happen unless a citizen journalist gets in there. Good luck that uh, hopefully they won't be kicked out. Uh, who knows? So the situation is this, Kevin. Is this a good idea? And the first question is, What's wrong with our current constitution that is causing our federal government to be out of control? Because the whole document of the constitution is to rein in the federal government. So is the document the problem or is the lack of adherence to the document the problem? Oh, it's definitely the latter. Now, Mark Levin would argue, oh, the constitution's broken right now. Well, yeah, that's because the system 
is broken. We don't have enough people participating in primaries. We've got too many back deals going on in states. Like you said, politicians are being bribed. Uh, we've got election fraud. How do you fix all that? I'm sure that there's, you know, how I, how do you, what do you, what do we do to fix all that without a convention? I don't think we need a convention to fix all that personally. So the question is, if we were to have a convention and we propose some great amendments, my question is, if they're not abiding by the Constitution or any of the other amendments, why would they suddenly abide by a new amendment? If the problem is the lack of adherence to the law of the land, how would changing the law of the land force them to abide by it? I don't know. I suppose maybe they might for a while, but then get, uh, you know, get bribed or lackadaisical. But I, you, you've got a good point. I'm not sure that that would. So let me give you another scenario, and that is the Constitution isn't the fault. Fixing it is not the, what's necessary, but forcing adherence to it is necessary. If the federal government is out of control, if the federal government is not abiding by the law of the land, who is to hold it accountable? The people. That's the people what the whole point of the Constitution the was, the people. Even more, the states, because the states first were formed. The That's states right formed a federal government, meaning that the states have only granted specific powers to the federal government. When someone goes outside of their authority, do you just say, wow, what a bummer, let's leave it up to the judges? Or do you say, excuse me, I don't think you have the authority to do that, therefore we don't have to abide by it. That is called nullification or interposition of which our founding fathers were in agreement that when the federal government is out of control, it is the duty of the states and of the people to not comply, but to nullify or to say this is no longer, this is void and null and we will not be abiding by this. That is the way you put them back in check is by not allowing them to do the things that they are doing. Why do the states keep complying with unconstitutional mandates? I'll tell you why I think. I think there's a lot of money involved. And then, you got uh, it. Yep. You Give got it. Example. So it's money. So, so they want to rein in the federal government for abusing the budget, for example. But yet, which state has said, hey, federal government, we aren't doing this. Why? Because the federal government will come back and say, okay, you, you can not do it. We'll just stop sending you federal money. And then the state legislators say, no, 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 sorry, we were just kidding. No, 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 don't worry. Don't worry, we'll do it. None of the states have the balls to say, hey, we don't care. We'll stop taking your money, but we're not going to be your slave. You were put in place to do specific things that we felt necessary, that we as individual states could not do. That's it. The rest of it, in accordance to the 10th Amendment, says that whatever is, is not mentioned in the Constitution was to be left to the states and of the people. So those rights still exist with us, the people and the states. When are we gonna take back our power? That's the question. This is how you solve this, is by the states and the people stop cooperating with unconstitutional acts. 
Well, let me ask you this. How, what is the best way that the states can do that? I don't see it happening other than saying no, but then the problem I see is the states and the government, the federal government are so entangled and so the state relies on so much federal money for social programs and transportation, public transportation, mass transit, whatever you want to call it. So if they say no, then what? Uh, how do, what do you do then? Or what, what do the citizens do then if they like all what they're getting? Make a choice. Choose to be a slave of the federal government or become, again, uh, sovereign states who have the power, the ultimate power, and leave that power retained by the people. If you wish to be free, you can't be shackled to money. Yeah, uh -huh. the all become shackled to the money. So which do they want? Choose to continue to be shackled by the money or say we wish to be a sovereign state that cannot be controlled by a tyrannical government and we will no longer take your money. And how would we do that? Well, let's go back and stop spending as much money as they're spending. Let's take a look at things within the state. Is that actually the function of the state to be taken care of? of could, or could that be resolved through the people and voluntary actions? Well, then people will say, <laughs> oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Well, then people will say, oh, well, we, we don't have enough money to fix our roads. We don't have enough people. And I'm saying, okay, you have a point. But if we could be energy independent like we were under Donald Trump, if we could have our own oil, if we could get the XL pipeline back in, if we could, each state would have, would dig for their own oil, use their own resources. You know what? I think we'd get a lot of money to do what we need to do to have public transportation, to have, uh, you know, uh, programs to help the poor and needy and things like that. If, if we could spend our own money with all these resources that we've got, what do you think? Well, uh, yes, on all of that. But the question is, what is the proper role of government? Is that the role of government or could it be done through volunteer volunteer organizations or nonprofit organizations? Could many of these problems be solved that way? The more money there is to play with, the more money that there is wasted. Oh, yeah, I, I don't disagree. How do you get people on that mindset that we have been off this mindset for generations? How do you get people back onto that mindset, though? I don't disagree with you. What do you how do you get people? That's going to take a generation or two for people, maybe even three generations for people to get used to. I don't believe it's a matter of getting used to. I think it's about teaching the ideas of liberty and what it takes to be a free people and to allow people to participate in thinking about these things and coming up with other solutions. Let's just go back to pre-1960, okay? How, yep. did, how did the states function then? They weren't dependent on federal money then. The 1950s were not that horrible. You know, we could took care of our own. So could we restore uh, our way of life going back to the 1950s? Could we do that without waiting 70 years to ratchet it back slowly? And the answer is when the money is no longer there, the people will recognize that we never needed it in the first place. So I have a question. This is a philosophical question. 
And primarily, this is to get me and to get the audience to think here. And I'm actually glad that you came on. I, I want to thank you very much for coming out. This is a good discussion. Um, I know it sounds like I'm pushing back, but I want people to think here. So, uh, you know, the argument is, and actually, in principle, I agree with it, that it should be the churches, not the government, to take care of their own. It should be family members. It should be you name it. The argument, then, that people will use and that I have used on occasion is this. If we're going to go back to that time, which I don't see a problem with in theory, I actually think it would work in principle, but you're going to have the argument people are going to use is, oh, well, Dan Jones goes to church for the wrong reasons. He's just doing it because the church gives him money. He's doing it because he's getting food from the church. He's doing it because of whatever, whatever. And there are people like that. What, what, what would you come back with? I would say would you come back? People go to that church because uh, a real church understands that you teach a man how to fish. You don't feed him a fish. So churches would only help people as long as they're needing help. And once they're feeling that help is now being abused, they'll stop giving their charity. Churches don't give for free. They do expect something back in return. And if you're just going to become a leech on them, they're not going to tolerate that. So there will be systems in place. We help you for so long, and then you show that you're capable of functioning on your own or not, uh, and we decide whether we want to continue to support you or not. Obviously, the yeah. elderly don't give a time limit. You know, you're going to help the elderly as long as they're around. Uh, but depending on people's ability, the churches will decide how long they would help you. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd help any of my neighbors and my friends, but I'm only going to help them for a while. And if I feel like I'm being abused, I stop helping them. But government, it never stops. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Ezra Taft Benson. You must. Absolutely. Absolutely. I used to be a Democrat. Now I am, I would say, pretty conservative. Even when I was a Democrat and I heard his political speeches, I had to admit he had some points. And he is definitely right that we have become slaves to these government programs. He is not wrong. You know, I look at I, I went I lived in Canada for a while. I saw generations of people living off the government. I'm sure it's true here, too. I just was never exposed to it here, probably because of the circles I'm in or whatever. But I definitely noticed it up there. President Benson was not wrong. Um, here's a question, though, not to feel sorry for myself or any blind people or anybody with a disability. Somebody like me, who is trying to make the way in society... And I'm doing things, by the way, to help myself. I'm, I don't want you to think that I'm just sitting around doing nothing. I've got things in the works. But somebody like me has tried years and years to find full-time employment with very little success. Now I'm doing this podcast, hoping that it'll generate money from my podcast provider eventually. I know I'm not going to make a fortune, but I'll make something. What do you think? And uh, I've definitely 
given up my all in terms of finding full-time work or whatever, what would the churches do in a situation like mine, who, you know, people like me are definitely giving it their all. We'll even go clean the church if we have to. I've done that before with my church, by the way. I had no problem with that. I would say go ask the LDS church. They're masters at helping their own. Oh, and yeah. They would, what, they would tell you what their plan would be. I think, Kevin, the question is, what is the proper role of government? And mm -hmm. if we were our founding fathers, the whole purpose of government was merely to protect the rights of the people, the right to life, liberty, and property. That is the sole purpose of government, is to protect our rights. Not to protect the people and keep them safe, but to protect our rights. Mm -hmm. That were granted by God, that cannot be taken by man. That was the purpose of government. If we start to look at the world from that perspective, then everything changes. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. Um, well, is there anything else you want to say about the Convention of States uh, or anything else that you want to bring up about Chile or anything like that? I think that this is a good discussion. I hope you've enjoyed it. Absolutely. I think, again, recognizing what is the purpose of government? What is it that made America the envy of the world? Was it that government provided so much for its people? Or was it that the government didn't provide for them, but left them free to provide for themselves and others as they voluntarily chose for? Which one is it? America was unique. America was great. As long as the people were left alone to provide for themselves and others voluntarily and freely, and that their rights were protected from government. We've lost that concept. That is what needs to be changed, is the understanding of the people. Amen to that. I, I don't disagree with you there. Well, Leah, if you can't stick with me for a little bit, uh, I hope you. I hope that I've given you all some things to think about. I think that we need to have these kinds of discussions. And yes, I uh, pushed back a little bit on Leah because I want people to think. I think these discussions are a must if we're going to get anywhere in society and improve it. Don't you think, Leah? Amen. Yep. All right, folks. I will talk to you later. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. If you want to follow us on Facebook, go ahead and do so at Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone. If you want to follow us on Twitter, Gitter, and True Social, you can do so at RKY Freedom. That's RKY, then the word freedom. If you have a suggestion, comment, or you know of a guest that you think I should interview, go ahead and email the podcast. That email is Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at proton, P R O T O N M A I L.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. Thank you for listening.